acceptance of that. Uh, but uh, there we go. Uh, is it me or is Ice Age getting like dangerously close to like the Land Before Time series? Uh, just keeps rolling and rolling. Yeah, parents my age, you get it. All right. Well, hey, we're going to walk through this. Uh, hot or cold is really our theme this morning from as we're stepping off this Ice Age movie. And so I want to invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 3, and we're going to walk through this. And just to kind of stay with the hot, cold theme, we uh, thought we'd have no air conditioning in here this morning for you, just so we can try to get one Uh, of those going for you to feel. So uh, Revelation chapter 3, and here's what I want to encourage you. If you have your Bible with us this morning, we've been encouraging you to bring your Bible along as we track through these passages. Uh, I want to encourage you, kind of stay in Revelation, because we're going to cross-reference a lot of other places. Maybe difficult to do the the flipping unless you're like lightning speed. Um, Stay there. Uh, In your sermon notes on the back, there's an area for notes. Um, And if you just want to write in those other passages, you can work through those in your own uh, personal devotion time. Uh, later in the week would be just great. So I, yesterday I was making some uh, barbecue, and uh, the recipe I was using called for white pepper. Now, I had never heard of white pepper. I didn't even know that existed. And uh, so I started hunting for white pepper at a few stores and was not able to locate it uh, at the stores I was looking for. So I decided I would call a chef. Uh, my friend Chris back here uh, was a chef for many years in his life. And uh, so I called him, and I got the lowdown from him that he said, halt your search, it's a waste of your time, pretty much tastes the same as the normal, but uh, an aesthetic quality, which I didn't care anything about with the way it looked, I just wanted to eat it. Um, so I halted that and moved on. And you know what I thought as I was heading out the store, thankful that Chris had said that, is, you know, sometimes I think in our Christian journey, we do that a lot. You see, God gives us his word right here. He tells us, pray, come to me. He says, engage with other Christians and be challenged by that. And instead of that, using that, we say, I'd like to find something like new, something like, you know, just different and dynamic and amazing and cutting edge that I might use instead. So we look for different resources or books or, or video series or these type of things, which can be helpful tools. But in that God is reminding us, I have a staple in your life that's so significant to your spiritual growth. It's my word. It's prayer. It's spending time with with Christians. It's being challenged that way, doing the ministry and the service that I've called you to. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to get into just the regular old pepper, and we're going to read this morning and walk through this passage, and I think God's going to hit us with some things uh, of interest. So Revelation chapter 3, let me pray for you, and then we'll jump into it. So Father, this morning as we walk through this passage, I pray that not only would your word be shared, but Lord, would your heart be heard by us. And if there be anything, God, that you're calling us to, whether as a church as a whole or individual sitting here, if there's anything you lay on our heart where you said, you need to be about this, then, Lord, would we not make one step in the rest of our day without solidifying that that is the direction we're going in our life. We thank you for what you do. We pray in your son's name. Amen. Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 14, it says this. Write this letter to the angel of the church of Laodicea. If you're familiar with this passage at all, this church in Laodicea, there were seven churches that letters were written to. John is the, the author of this book of Revelation. And uh, at the beginning here, in the first few sections, the first few chapters, he's asked to write these, these letters. This is Jesus' words that are given to be written down. Now, the city of Laodicea was founded between about 261 and uh, 246 B.C., 
by King Antiochus. Antiochus. I'm just saying, Pasics, you're going to have a new child tomorrow. You could have an Antiochus by this time tomorrow if you so choose. Antiochus II of Syria, um, and he, he was named the city after his wife, and that's how it became Laodicea. Um, then they later divorced, and it must have not gone very well, the divorce settlement, because soon after that she poisoned him, and he died. So uh, that didn't work very well. But by the first century, this Laodicean town had become a big cosmopolitan. It had become a metropolis, um, and its populations were made up of, of Greeks. It was also uh, Syrians and Romans who had been influenced by, uh, by the Greeks. Greek way of life, and then there was this large, sizable group of Jews and Jewish Christians that settled here. So that's what makes up the town, and that's how the town grew. Um, we find out here that it, it, it very well may be Epaphras who actually founded the church that this letter is being written to. If you see in, in Colossians chapter 3, Epaphras, a member of your own fellowship and the servant of Christ Jesus, sends you his greeting. He always prays earnestly for you, asking God to make you strong and perfect, fully confident that you are following the whole will of God. I assure you, I can assure you that he prays hard for you and also for the believers at Laodicea and Hierapolis. From uh, Colossians 2, we actually see that Paul seems to be concerned with this church. I want you to know how much I have agonized, this is Paul the Apostle writing, for you and for the church at Laodicea, for many other believers who I've never met personally. Now, Laodicea was a very wealthy town. Very wealthy. In fact, it's set on the edge of three major trade routes. And so because of that alone, the church had, or his church there was wealthy as well. The town was known for this, uh, this, blo- this black glossy wool they were able to produce from, uh, for, from their town. And so they produced this, plus they produced this eye ointment for like desert living. And so they had this eye solution that they manufactured there as well. Now, due to the, this trade route, as, you, as we said, they became like a very wealthy town. So people were attracted to live there. And so high financiers and bankers and people like that were, were attracted to move there, and they spent their money there. And so the town was full of things like uh, theaters and stadiums and these big bathhouses and shopping centers and things like this that was put into play. In fact, the phrase was that it was very Laodicean to have, uh, be prideful in your wealth and in your buildings that you had put up. And so you were very Laodicean that way. So we get into this passage, chapter 3, verse 14, the second part of it there. It says this, this is the message from the one who is the amen, the faithful and true witness, and the beginning of God's new creation. First thing we see here that Jesus identifies himself as the amen. Now we did this long word study a few weeks ago, a couple months back, on the word Amen. But let me just recap and give you an overview. This word amen, it comes from this Greek meaning that means firm or stable, final, or truth. Remember that word right there in the end. And so its application really is so be it. Do you remember when we talked about the word amen? When we say amen at the end of a prayer, we are saying so be it. So be it true for everything we just, we just prayed. It is as in confirmation. So we actually find that this name is applied to God in Isaiah chapter 65, verse 16. It says, all who invoke a blessing and take an oath will do so by the God of truth. Literally translated there, the amen of God. For I will put aside my anger and forget the evil 
earlier days. So amen is, is emphasizing something that's like true, something that's valid, something that you agree with. That is the amen. Do you understand that there? Now, typically at times when you say something like that, the congregation will say amen to the pastor. Um, okay, we'll work on that part. Um, it's okay. Um, but this is this word of truth. So when, when it's placed on Christ here, it means he is the end. He is the certainty. He is the truth, is what he's calling himself. And secondly, we, we find that he identifies himself as the faithful and the true witness. Faithful and true witness. This really identifies what the AM, the truth, means here. That Jesus represents God and God's truth in a way that is faithful. Uh, do you understand, I mean, how simply that's being put here when we ask, well, well, why would Jesus do that? Quite simply, God is truth, and Jesus is his faithful witness. Uh, do you understand what that means about our Christianity, our following, our longing to be like Christ? God is truth. We are his faithful witness to that truth. And as we discover in, the, in this chapter, and when we talk about the Laodiceans, what we're finding here is Jesus is obviously declaring to them, you do not carry and witness to the truth of God. And so I'm not very happy with you, and we'll get into what he says about that as he moves on. Now we find uh, this third way that he identifies himself as he says the beginning of God's new creation. What Jesus is really doing here is he is affirming that he was in the beginning with creation. This comes into even clearer view. If you remember, John writes another book of the Bible called John, the Gospel of John. And in the very first chapter, verse 2 through 4, it says, He, Jesus, existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. The Word, Jesus, gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought to our light, life brought light, excuse me, to everyone. So now, if we're not careful, I think we could be a lot like the Laodiceans here, who, what Jesus is getting at at the beginning, they were wrapped up in things that belonged to the world, things that pass away, things that were fleeting, that had an expiration date on them. They loved and trusted these perishable things even more than they love and trusted God himself. Now, some of you, let me just stop you. You heard, well, what do you mean, Tom? We're not supposed to have anything? We, we can't enjoy anything of this world or anything perishable? That's not what the passage says. What the passage says is that when we love those things, honor those things, serve those things, put those things into use, greater than or instead of what God has called us to as believers in his name, then we have a problem. And that's what he's going to be getting at here with, with the Laodiceans. We find in another one of John's books, one of his letters he wrote, 1 John 2, verse 15, it says, Do not love this world, nor the things it offers you. And then in verse 17, he says, This world is fading away along with everything that people crave. So this is a serious thing that John, a theme that he puts now in three of the books he writes. So in this opening verse, Jesus reveals himself. He's like the firm and final word, right? He's the reliable witness. He's a ruler from the very beginning, from the start of creation. That's just him identifying who he is. That would give pretty good authority to now go into saying what he wants to say to this church 
And he's going to jump right into it in just a second for us. Now, despite all of what I've just said about Laodicea, the hometown pride and the wealth and, and everything good, the trade routes and all this stuff that was going on in the town of Laodicea, uh, there was a major weakness, a major weakness for them. They had no fresh water supply. No fresh water. So they had to actually pipe in or bring in water from the surrounding area. So what they did end up having was an overabundance of lukewarm water from borrowing cities and from neighboring cities here. Six miles to the north, the city of, of Heropolis, they enjoyed these uh, like therapeutic hot springs, kind of like, you know, uh, you, you think of Yellowstone National Park, where they, they would, you could get in these hot springs and it was warm therapeutic water. But this had to travel like, uh, actually, over the course of the trip, it traveled a mile, 300 feet downhill, and then it would dump off this cliff into where the Laodiceans could collect it. Over the course of that journey, uh, down that path, it collected all the, the minerals, the carbonate formations that covered the cliffs as it went down. And so you can imagine that water, when it went down, it became tepid and laced with minerals, not incredible to drink. Uh, Ten miles to the east, Colossae, actually enjoyed the opposite. They had this pure cold water that bubbled up from these artesian springs. And so this cold water, though, when it was piped the 10 miles to Laodicea, as you can imagine, it warmed on its journey. And in a desert community, it probably warmed pretty good. If you could imagine your bottle of water sitting out this morning outside and then you going and wanting to take a little drink of that later today. So because of this, it's kind of widely known that the water in Laodicea was lukewarm. Do you understand the context Jesus has to work with when he starts to talk about what he wants to talk about here in the next few moments? So here's what he gets into, verse 15, as he moves on. And you might be familiar with this verse. It says, I know all the things you do. Remember that word do. You are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were one or the other. One or the other. In the original language, that hot is the word zestos. Um, And it actually gets us eventually to a word we know pretty well. It's called the word zeal. Zeal comes from zestos. And this is how we really understand that word. Um, It comes from a, a, a verse from Romans chapter 12, verse 11. Here's what it says. Never be lazy. But work hard, that's zestos in language, and serve the Lord enthusiastically. So another form of that, with zestos there, or with zest, you might say. But contextually, when we look at this, zestos had another meaning. In fact, it was the most common meaning of the word zestos. It was the word boiling water. Boiling water. So you go to make your mac and cheese, you boil up your water, right? And you have on your stove the zestos that you now put your macaroni in to soften it up and then add your cheese later and those uh, type of things, right? Zestos, with boiling water, was the most common use of this word. So when we look at this and we put it in the context of these hot springs that came rolling down the hill into the town of Laodicea, And Jesus chooses to use, and there's several words for hot in the Greek language, even words in the Bible that mean hot. Jesus chooses the word boiling water, zestos, to describe this hot water. 
If we follow like a, a very traditional interpretation, a traditional interpretation of this would basically be a thought, well, you'd need to be either hot or cold. Either love God or hate God is what Jesus is saying. But if we look more contextually, if we look at the geographic setting and the location and what Jesus is saying as he's speaking into him, it would seem like maybe there's a, another option when we study God's word, a better option as we look at it. That instead of just saying that you need to love God or you need to hate God, I'd like you to be one of those two things. And you might have sometimes in your head said, why would Jesus ever prefer somebody to hate God over being lukewarm in their faith? Now, if you're in American culture, we've actually created this all or nothing mentality. It's actually not something that, that, that seems to, to play out uh, in, in ancient Middle East. But um, sometimes we will put this on the passage just because it's part of our Western culture and our Western thought. But think contextually as Jesus is speaking here. Remember one key word. I know the things you do. I know the actions you are part of. They're neither hot nor cold. Jesus isn't necessarily talking about the heart, though the heart leads to our actions. Jesus is saying, I'm seeing what you're doing. You're neither hot nor cold. You're neither like these therapeutic hot springs, which bring healing and comfort to people who are hurting in pain, but you're also neither like these cold springs that bring refreshing cold water when somebody is parched, when somebody's just uh, dehydrated and you bring the cold water to them. You're neither one of those. He's saying basically there uh, that you're not part of any of the ministry of God at all. What God is about, what Jesus preached, you don't seem to be about it at all in what you, remember the key word, in what you do. Has anything really changed too much over the centuries when we're talking about the, uh, the temperature of our beverage? Um, I'm not a coffee drinker, but I know enough of you are, uh, that you want your coffee either hot or you want it iced, right? Like if you go to your, your favorite coffee place, a lukewarm coffee is not on the menu. It's not one of the things you order from them. In fact, if a waitstaff brought you the lukewarm coffee at your restaurant, that comes with a lot of complaints and not a lot of tips, right, that, that come along with that. It's just not what we like. So can you see now contextually where Jesus is going? And then his next verse, verse 16, where Jesus gets out, he, he says, but since you are neither you are, are like, excuse me, but since you are like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I want to spit you out of my mouth. Could you just see yourself at a restaurant and your coffee comes and you've just been itching for your coffee, whether you ordered it hot or cold, doesn't matter, and you took the first swig with, with all, you know, gusto and it was lukewarm, what your, your just, your knee-jerk response might be. Might very well be what he just said, to spit it out of your mouth. Now that word translated uh, is actually emeo, which, com- which we get the word emetic or to induce vomiting. So uh, like it or not, emeo is to vomit, is what the Bible is saying there. Now my New Living Translation that I read to you, uh, it softens it a bit for the squeamish here, and some of your translations do, but the literal point here in the lukewarm condition is that it is completely repulsive, completely repulsive, And remember now, who is saying this? Jesus, writing to one of his churches, saying this here. Jesus is saying, look, spiritual apathy, 
this spiritual indifference, not wanting to be a part of the mission of God, ignoring what it is God wants to bring to our life and how he wants to transform us is a dangerous thing to, for us to continue in any type of growth. Now, uh, you may know this, but lukewarmness doesn't really just happen overnight, doesn't. If you put your hot coffee on the counter, it'll take a little while before it to become uh, lukewarm. Now, today, I guess if you put your iced coffee outside, it's going to be lukewarm fast. So, but just like looking up on WebMD or looking at a thermometer and the degrees, um, the symptoms of lukewarmness are very apparent. Now, uh, I say that about WebMD. I've gone only there a couple times, and um, it seemingly I have, uh, when I look on my symptoms on WebMD, have you noticed it just seems like you have some horrible, terrible disease when you go on? Am I the only one? Okay, you're shaking your head. Yeah, I think I've had something that only affects one in eight billion, and um, quarantine to the moon is one of the things they want to do. It's, yeah, um, that, that's WebMD. Uh, if, if, you, if, if you don't believe it, just look it up. Just throw in your healthy things and see what it tells you. It, if we honestly, though, compare our lives to the Word of God, if we compare it to God's Word, uh, then we find that the Holy Spirit is our measuring stick. It, it, the Holy Spirit is our web.com, our, our, our thermometer that tells us what our spiritual temperature is. And Paul, the apostle, actually writes about this. He actually tells us, gives us instruction on this. He says, that's why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. When you come to take communion, he's saying, remember... Remember what, what is done in all this, of me going to the cross and what you committed your life to and being the Lord of your life. Examine your life before you take of that. Again, in 2 Corinthians 12, uh, 13, 5, it says, Examine yourselves. If your faith is genuine, test yourself. So, um, looking back at the passage, not only was the church at Laodicea lukewarm, but they actually were tragically self-deceived. Look at what it says in verse 17 there uh, in, the, in the passage. Verse 17, you say, I am rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Jesus, could you be any more direct here? Very direct. The Laodiceans, they saw this issue of life and faith and how they lived it out they saw it from their perspective and their perspective alone. There's a story that was once told of a, a young woman who came to see her pastor. And uh, she just, she came before him and she was broken and she confessed, Pastor, I'm just having a lot of trouble like focusing on like the messages and the worship time and just, I'm having trouble focusing on the whole thing on Sunday mornings. And from the moment I enter the church until the moment of I leave, my mind is just occupied that I'm the prettiest girl in the whole church. And I, I just can't think of anything else. How can you help me get rid of this prideful sin? And the pastor thought for a second, and then he responded, in your case, my dear, this is not necessarily a grievous sin at all, but a terrible miscalculation. I'm sure it's a made-up story. Sometimes I think we are self-deceived and we find that the Laodicean church is self-deceived in their valuation. When they look at themselves and they see themselves, they see themselves as having everything they need and being set and being okay. But even the one whose name was Amen couldn't say Amen in this passage to them. 
And so the attitude of the Laodiceans uh, was, was a struggle. In their situation, in terms of their wealth and their prosperity, it, it, actually, it actually caused an issue in their life where they realized that they didn't need anything else, including God. And so they started living their life out that way. Now, here's what he says. You're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Let's just quickly look at those words. Wretched here is not entirely clear, but it it seems to mean like they're calloused or hardened to the truth. Miserable describes a person here who exists in like a pitiful condition that becomes an object of public sympathy. Poor in this context means like beggarly, where you're, you're out asking for what you need. Blind means lacking in spiritual insight or discernment, and then naked means being totally without clothes or uh, being in rags here. Do you catch the irony and even the, the, the kind of the humor Jesus is throwing in here when he looks at them and he says to them, um, yeah, you're wealthy. You have a lot of money in your town, in your church. You manufacture things. I mean, you wear fine wool clothes because of what you get to manufacture here. You actually make a balm uh, that you can put on your eyes in, in desert conditions that helps your, your eye um, to, to heal up if, if it need to be. Um, you do all that, but despite that, despite those clothes, you're, you're naked. And despite that, that, that eye solution, you're blind. Despite that wealth, you're, you're poor. Despite you thinking you have everything, you're miserable. Jesus is hitting them in every stage of where they're at, but from a spiritual Sense. Now remember, it's not money that's a problem. First Timothy 6.10 reminds us, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and some people craving money have wandered from the, the true faith and perceive themselves with many sorrows. Do you notice that that passage has nothing to do with being rich? It has to do with our craving and our desire for money, which could hit anyone in any economic status entirely. So that's where the Laodiceans are here. And that's what they see themselves, and Jesus sees them entirely different, entirely different. You're not about the things of God. You're not like a hot spring, and you're not like a cold spring at all. Look, you and I need to ask ourselves a question here. Do I, do I provide spiritual refreshment for believers or for unbelievers? Do I provide any form of caring and healing for people that are in need Do I bring encouragement or joy and hope to other people's lives? Do I challenge people that need to be challenged? What am I doing to be this hot or cold as well? That's the challenge that he's putting to those in Laodicea, and I think it's the same challenge for us. So how do we do that? Um, We find in verse uh, 18, Jesus offers himself as the solution for for these Laodiceans. Verse 18, he says, So I advise you to buy gold from me, gold that has been purified by fire. Then you'll be rich. Also buy white garments from me, so you will not be shamed by your nakedness or an ointment for your eyes, so you will be able to see. Now, um, what the Laodiceans needed, they couldn't buy with the money and the wealth. Jesus had made that clear. So what is he really getting at here? Uh, what, we, what we're really understanding here comes to light when we look at Isaiah 55, 1. And he says, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. You see, in this, in this context, in the context of Revelation 3.18, what we're really getting here is the word obtain. You need to obtain this from me. And the first item that they needed to retain, we find 
is to be refined by fire. You understand what it means to be refined by fire? Peter writes about this in, in uh, his letter. It says this, 1 Peter 1, 7. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even through, though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, honor with Christ Jesus. Our Jesus Christ is revealed. That when heat is applied to the gold, the impurities rise to the surface and the, the refiner skims off the top and leaves the purity. That's the first thing they need to obtain. He says they're, they're faithless, untested bunch. Secondly, we find that Jesus counsels them to uh, attain from him to buy white garments for me so that you will not be shamed by your nakedness. Now remember, this wool they had was unique. It was, it was expensive wool that they would wear. And Jesus is saying to them, your wool means nothing. And it's, it's seen in God's word, all throughout God's word, the white garment is the metaphor he used. He says, you need to put on the white garment that I offer you. Third, Jesus counsels them, you need to attain ointment for your eyes so that you can see. And you know when your eyes are irritated how horrible it is. And he says, I know you make a remedy. I know you make something here in your town. Apparently it's pretty good and people travel from all over, but it's worthless and useless to your spiritual blindness. And you can only attain your ointment from me. Remember when Jesus was talking to his disciples, or to two blind men, and he says this in Matthew 20, Jesus felt sorry for them and touched their eyes. Instantly they could see, then they followed him. This last passage is, or this not last one, but this next passage is especially impactful here. We find in Revelation 3.19, he says there, I correct and discipline everyone I love, so be diligent and turn from your indifference. Now, I don't know about you. I don't really like the passages about there being any discipline on me. I want Jesus just to kind of come and pat me on the head like I do, you know, when my son was really, or my sons were really young, and I just tap, yeah, it's okay, buddy. It's going to be all right. We'll be, I don't really like the discipline passages, but Jesus is saying here to be diligent. Turn from your indifference because discipline comes. What does that word uh, diligent mean here? There's a little bit of grammar, which is not my strong suit, but I'll give it to you anyway. Um, diligent here is in the, the present imperative, which actually means to be diligent continually, to be in the process of being diligent, to be diligent right now and to stay diligent, to stay uh, keeping at that, to not become lukewarm here. But the, the repent is a little bit different. We've done a word study on that. Repent means to turn, to turn away from, change your mind, change your behavior. But it's in the aorist imperative sense. And you know what that means? Not continually do this. It says do it right now. It's emphatic right now. So Jesus is saying here, look, repent right now and stay diligent every day. Keep staying diligent. Why? Because correction and discipline comes when we are lukewarm warm here. Hebrews twelve six also says, for the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes each one he accepts as his child. He loves us. We said yes to him as our savior. And you know what he's saying here? This is so significant that we don't become lukewarm in our faith that I'll even bring discipline on your life as a means to help you. Now, all that we've talked through today, Jesus is really setting up this last challenge that we find in verse 
three, uh, excuse me, chapter three, verse 20. Look, I stand at the door and I knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I'll come in and we will share a meal together as friends. Now, um, if you're like me, I've heard that verse mostly in an evangelic context, like somebody trying to lead somebody else to the Lord to become a Christian. And I think that's fine. There's nothing wrong necessarily in using it in that context. The guy who was a big part of me coming to know Jesus Christ when I was a late teenager used that passage, and I, I, think, I, I think it worked out okay. I, I think it all, all worked out because I became uh, a believer. But in the context of, of this passage and who the letter is being written to, he's writing it to believers at a church. And he's saying to the Laodiceans, look, I'm standing at your door and I'm knocking. You're a church. You're believers. And I'm on the outside and I'm knocking. And you've got the handle on the inside. Would you open up and let me come fellowship with you? And if we look back to the times of fellowship that Jesus recounts in his his gospels, think about his time of fellowship with Mary and Martha at that table. Think of the time of fellowship with Uh, Zacchaeus, after he came down from the tree, we find incredible transformation when Jesus comes in and fellowships with us. He's saying, church, believers, I'm here. Don't shut me out. Let me come and fellowship with you. There's this immediate impact of the fellowship. He also reminds us in, in the next verse there, verse 21, for those who are victorious will sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and set on my father's throne as well. He's saying to them and reminding them there is eternity at stake as well, that you'll get to live with me forever, those who are victorious. His other, his other uh, letter he writes, for every child of God defeats evil in this world, and we achieve this through victory through what? Our faith, he says. So what's the takeaway this morning? It's simply this. Don't allow yourself to be deceived or to get slouched into any spiritual condition where you might be useless or tasteless to God. That's what he's saying. To him and to his purposes. He says, I've, I've designed you to do the work of the kingdom, to be about the work of the kingdom. I didn't design you to simply carry a title, but I've designed you to go out and make a difference and an impact in this world. And as we close this study, uh, now after all we walk to, you can see how this last verse is kind of apropos to this section and to all of the, the ver- letters to the churches. He says this in verse 22, anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he's saying to the churches. So let me ask you a question as we close there. Do you have ears to hear? Do you have ears this morning to hear what God is saying to you, what he's calling you to? Is he standing at the door of your life, even if you're a believer this morning, knocking, saying, let me come and fellowship with you this morning and make an impact? Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for this passage. I thank you for the challenge. And Lord, that we sometimes live in a a contemporary culture where one of the things we do not enjoy the most is to be challenged. Lord, we like to dismiss challenges sometimes by saying, don't judge me. But here it is, you, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who is re-challenging us in a passage written quite a long time ago. And so you say to us this morning, be a part of the ministry of the kingdom. Be hot or cold, serve. Don't be lukewarm, though. Lukewarm has, has just 
no use, no function to be lukewarm here. And Jesus said, I'm so serious about this. I want you to have the word picture that lukewarm is actually distasteful for my mouth. It's Jesus saying he's the one taking the taste and spitting it out. And so this morning, Lord, challenge us to be about the things of your kingdom. Lord, I believe that this congregation sitting here right now is bright enough and smart enough to be able to right away start to practically think of how this plays into their life what you're calling them to, what you're asking of them, what you're calling them away from, and the greater fellowship that you're calling them into in who you are. Father, I pray this morning that no person knowing the calling or knowing the challenge on their heart this morning would walk out of here, not just simply looking to you, God, and saying, yes, God, I'll do that. Thank you for challenging me. Thank you for disciplining me. Thank you for putting me back on the right path and give you the praise. Father, thank you for this. We pray it in your son's name. Amen.